0: A couple years ago, I saw the results of a LifeWay research group study, studying uh, not just trends in American religion in general, but in this case, specifically study on how Christians view evangelism. Evangelism, of course, is is the practice of telling other people about Jesus, to invite them to trust in Jesus as you have. And to me and most other people I saw talking about this study, the most striking thing about the study, about their findings, was that fewer than half of Christians in America had shared their faith in the previous six months. Fewer than half of, the, of Christians in America had shared their faith with somebody else over the course of the last six months before the study. Those are some striking findings, but, but maybe really not all that surprising. Not to me anyway. I mean, I... I often talk to friends who want to be doing more evangelism, friends who, who actually feel pretty guilty about not doing more evangelism or, or friends who, who just don't know where to begin with evangelism. For a lot of us, evangelism can be, I think if we're honest, a lot of us, evangelism can be one of those topics that kind of makes you cringe a little bit when it comes up because, because you know you ought to be doing a better job of it you know, you aren't doing a great job of it. You're not sure what to do about it. It's easier not to think about it at all than to have someone remind you it's something Christians are supposed to do. There are a lot of factors behind our response to evangelism and, and the fact that so many aren't practicing evangelism. I know there are a lot of factors. For some, it may be ignorance, just not knowing it's important to speak to other people about Jesus. For some, it may be a deep sense of inadequacy that they just feel They don't have what what it takes to do it well. For for some, maybe it's just apathy and distraction. There's so much else going on. And whatever the reasons that slow us down or trip us up on the path to faithful evangelism, surely, whatever those reasons may be, wherever you might find yourself, surely one of the most important tools for overcoming the barriers that keep us from faithful evangelism has got to be good models of faithful evangelists who are doing things that we can emulate. And that's exactly what Acts is meant to give us. One of the main purposes of this book is to show us evangelism in practice over and over and over again. And nowhere is that more clear for us than in the section that we've come to this morning. We've seen Paul giving a defense of his faith in Christ and his his activism in sharing the, the, his faith all around the world. In fact, much of what's said here and what I've just read, we've already covered in previous defenses that Paul has given. But, but this one is the most elaborate, the most carefully organized, probably due to the fact that no one's trying to tear Paul limb from limb in this situation. It's calmer. He's got time to think and to speak clearly. And because of this great detail, because of the way this this defense that Paul gives is laid out for us, it gives us a precious and clear model, a model that we need for the faithful and effective evangelism that, that Jesus has called us to. Now, uh, let me set the stage for you first before we begin to look carefully at the model Paul has provided us with, because chapter 25, really the whole chapter is here mostly as a bridge for us from the action we looked at last week in chapter 24 to the action we're going to look at this morning that's mostly in chapter 26. And for Paul, picking up at the beginning of chapter 25, surely this must have felt like a big time deja vu moment. Two years have passed since we left him with Felix in chapter 24. But with the Romans, who hold the the keys to his cell quite literally, Paul's basically back at square one. Felix left him. Festus has taken over. And Festus knows nothing about Paul's case. He's got to go through all of it all over again. And then when it comes to the Jewish leaders, well, two years have passed, but... But these guys are still up to exactly the same plotting that they were up to last week and what we saw two years ago. Let's get somebody to bring Paul to Jerusalem so that we can ambush him on the way and kill him. Same plan. They're still stuck on it. When Festus goes down to make nice with the locals, they try to get him to bring Paul back to Jerusalem. But, and Festus is amenable to it. That's verses 1 to 5. But Paul, Paul knows better. Sitting in that prison cell for two years has not given him time to forget what they tried to do the last time that he was asked to show up somewhere. He knows better than to take this plan seriously. And he opts instead for a change of scenery. When he's brought before Festus and asked about going to Jerusalem, Paul takes the off-ramp that's available to all good Roman citizens who've been charged without sufficient evidence. Paul appeals to Caesar. Look at verses 10 and 11. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, Paul says, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, being a good and faithful bureaucrat, Festus is all too happy to accept his appeal. Verse 12, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. But now Festus has a quandary because if you're gonna pass a case up the ladder like this, if you're gonna move this appeal in the way, uh, all the way up to the, to, to the emperor, you have to be able to show that this is worth the emperor's time. You have to be able to show that you're not just dodging the responsibility for yourself and passing the buck on to someone else. So Festus needs to be able to explain What's going on here? Why are these charges worth this kind of effort? He's got to write something up that he can send with Paul when he sends Paul all the way to Rome. And he doesn't know what to say. All he knows is that this brouhaha has something to do with Jewish doctrine. So how fortuitous for him that at just this time Agrippa the puppet king of a neighboring territory, the last in a long line of evil Herods stops by to pay his respects to the new Roman governor. Festus knows that this guy, Herod, he'll know Jewish thinking from the inside out. So Festus decides, I'll get his take on it. Let's see what Agrippa thinks should be done with this man. And after summing up what he knows about the case to Agrippa, verses 14 to 21, Agrippa's intrigued enough to see this man for himself. So they summon Paul in. The stage is set. And Luke tells us, Luke tells us that this group of VIPs enter the room, verse 23, with great pomp in all their finery, probably attended by their servants and all the minions whose job it was to make them happy, making sure that all eyes are on them, they They come in with this pomp and plop themselves down. How how ironic, friends, that these names are only known to us now. The names of Festus and Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Only because they crossed paths for just a moment in time. With this small and frail and unimpressive man, shackled in chains, who opens his mouth now and owns this room. I want to take you into chapter 26 for the rest of our time together. And through chapter 26, I want us to answer one question for ourselves. What will we need to be effective in evangelism? What will we need to be effective in evangelism if Paul is our model What will we need? I want to give you five things from Paul's testimony that show us what we will need and what God has made available to us so that we can take up the work that God has given to us in sharing Jesus with other people. Here's the first thing that we're going to need. First, we'll need clarity about the gospel. We'll need clarity about the gospel. At the center of evangelism is the evangel. just means good news. It's what we refer to as the gospel. It's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the gospel that that really is everything we have to offer to anybody. It's the only hope we have in life and in death. It's the only thing we have to offer that gives hope and peace to anyone else. And it does offer hope and peace to anyone from anywhere who will accept it. And that means the first key to effective evangelism is making sure we're clear on what the gospel is that we keep it front and, and center in what we share with others. And Paul helps us with this. Now, what, what Paul says here is not some sort of systematic treatment. He doesn't break it down in a set of five simple truths that you need to remember and make sure you get into every presentation. That's not how this passage breaks down. You can go to his, to his letters if you want to see a treatment like that. There's plenty, of, there's plenty there to offer. But what I want to do is, is, is take a, a pass over the whole of what Paul says here and try to pull to the surface for you some things that lie beneath it at the foundation of what Paul is doing in chapter 26. I want to make sure it's clear what it is that lies up under everything else we're going to say about evangelism this morning. And in Paul's speech, we get the core content of the gospel. It's broken down into what Jesus has done, what Jesus offers, and how we should respond to it. What Jesus has done and what Jesus offers and how we should respond to it the gospel is good news it begins as news not advice not tips for life but just a simple announcement of something that's already been done by someone else that you can get in on the gospel begins with the fact that Jesus has lived and died and risen to life again Paul's been saying what he's always saying in Acts. And everywhere you find him talking just about, he's talking about the fact that his faith in Jesus isn't some new religion. It's not some huge departure from what he used to believe when he was a faithful Jewish believer. He sees Jesus as a fulfillment of everything he was already hoping for, everything his people had been hoping for. In verse 22, he sums it up. I stand here, he says, testifying both to small and great Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What is that? That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. These are the facts at the heart of the gospel. Christ has died, Christ is risen. When Paul says that the Christ must suffer, almost certainly he has in mind the great prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53... Where, God looks, where, where, God, where, where the prophet looks ahead to a servant that God would send to his people, a servant on whom God would put the iniquity of his people, who would die not because he deserved it, but who would die so that his pe- God's people could be set free from their sins. Isaiah 53 looked to a suffering Savior who would be a sacrifice that would do away with sin once and for all. That's what Paul has in his mind when he says that the Christ has suffered or must suffer. And when Paul says that the Christ must be the first to rise from the dead, he has in mind what he and the other apostles have been preaching about throughout this whole book. Christ did die, but he did not remain in the grave. He rose, and not just for himself, but as the first of many. He rose so that anyone who trusts in him can rise just like he did. He's the first to rise, but not the last to rise. The core of the gospel begins with what Jesus has already done. Offering himself as a sacrifice to cover sin and rising again for the hope that anyone who trusts in him can have victory over the grave just like he did. That's what Jesus has done. And it sets up what Jesus offers. Paul sums this up in verse 18. Here Jesus is speaking, telling Paul to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Here's why. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what Jesus offers based on what Jesus has done. Jesus died not for himself, but for others. Jesus died to pay the, what it costs to forgive sinners no matter what they've done. Jesus has the right to forgive anyone because Jesus is the one who was sinned against and Jesus is the one who paid down the cost that forgiveness always brings. What Jesus offers begins with an offer of full and free forgiveness. But that is not the end of what he offers. There's more. He also offers belonging He offers, as Paul puts it, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. Another way to put this is that that Jesus, through forgiveness, offers a new life in his kingdom. A life among his people who live under his rule. Among the people who depend on him and trust in him and obey him. And live with the joy and the peace that comes from having him for a king. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 18 when he talks about this transfer from darkness to light, when he talks about transfer from the power of Satan to the power of God, he has in mind a whole new world that Jesus' death and resurrection have made possible. And a taste of that life, of what it is to live with Jesus for a king amongst other people who belong to the same kingdom is the the fruit of the gospel that's available to us right here, right now. What Jesus offers is forgiveness as a doorway into a new kingdom with a new king and a new people to belong to. And this sets up how we respond. The gospel also includes how we can get in on it. It's not good news for us if it's for somebody else. We might be glad for them, might be grateful to know it's out there. But it becomes good news for us when we know there's an invitation here that we can claim. There's a doorway we can walk through. And that's exactly what Paul is offering. To make this transfer from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from the power of darkness to the power of light, you have to want to be transferred. Paul sums it up in verse 20 where he's talking about his ministry in Jerusalem and Judea and then to the Gentiles, he says that he went around telling them that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. You see that? Repentance just means turning from one king to another. It just means rejecting all the other hopes that you used to to trust in and embracing the hope that Jesus has offered. It just means rejecting other authorities that you used to live for, including your own, and embracing the authority that Jesus brings to your life with his agenda for what your flourishing and fullness will look like. It means turning from one set of goals for your life to the goals that Jesus gives you, from doing what seems best to you to doing what he tells you is best. It means turning from one king to another one, and there's no other way in short of repentance friends this is the gospel Christ has died Christ is risen and he rose to offer forgiveness and belonging to anyone from anywhere and all you have to do to get in on what he offers is embrace it by turning from whatever else you trusted in whoever else you may have followed to him as your Savior and Lord. This is a gospel offer that's made to you today. We'd love the chance to talk to you after this service. If you have questions about what it would mean for you to embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, nothing would make us happier than to talk to you about it for as long as you've got to spare. For this morning, I want to move from this clarity about the gospel into the next thing that we're going to need if we're to be effective in evangelism. It won't get anywhere without clarity about the gospel. Everything, all of our hopes are contained in this message. But this message doesn't just come to us as a set of ideas, a set of bullet points passed from one mind to another. There's another delivery system that God has designed for this gospel from one person to another person. And the second a key that we learn from Paul here that'll be so important for us if we want to be effective in evangelism is that we're going to need a personal experience of God's grace. We won't just need clarity about the gospel, we'll need a personal experience of God's grace. It, it, you can see it all through this speech in chapter 26. Paul's not just talking about the prophets, he's not just talking about what happened in history. He's not just talking about the ideas that Jesus, about, or about how ideas about Jesus compare to ideas amongst the pagans. He is doing those things here and elsewhere, but, but he's doing far more than that. He's telling everybody who will listen what happened to him. He's sharing his experience with Jesus. The speech, in fact, I mean, all of chapter 26, Paul's speech is organized around the big pieces to Paul's life. Paul was once a Pharisee, he tells us. That's where he begins in verses four and five. That's how he grew up and he lived his life according to the strictest rules out there. Then he tells us the zealous Pharisee becomes the persecutor of the church. That's verses nine to 11. He thought faithfulness to God meant opposing anything to do with Jesus. So we went around locking up Christians. He worked to have them killed and he hounded them not just around Jerusalem. He tells us here, he he chased them down even into foreign cities. He wanted them gone. And it was on one of these missions trying to root Christianity out of the world. Verse 12 tells us that the persecutor met the one he'd been persecuting. Read with me from verses 14 and 15. When we had all fallen to the ground, Paul says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Friends, in this moment, Paul, the persecutor, meets Jesus and finds himself at the mercy of the one that he's been spending his life opposing with all his might. He now sees the truth that he's been denying and trying to sweep out of the world is living And right there in front of his eyes. And what should you expect when you find that the one you took for a fraud is alive and well and ruling the world? What happens next? Not what happened next, that's for sure. That's not what I would expect. This Jesus doesn't squash him like a grape, though he could have. This Jesus doesn't even condemn him with his words, though he would have been right to. This Jesus gives him grace and gives him a new purpose for his life. Trading out the purpose of of eradicating Christianity from the world for the purpose of sharing the hope of Christianity all over the world. Not only did Jesus spare him, Jesus gives him responsibility for the thing that Jesus gave his life to to obtain the thing that's most precious to him in all the world he gives him the church to spread and to build that's grace that's grace and it's Paul's personal experience of the gospel that keeps him talking to anybody who will listen friends look I know that that our stories won't be compelling in the same way that Paul's was We didn't see for ourselves the the nail-scarred hands. We didn't hear with our own ears the voice from the blinding light on a lonely Middle Eastern road. Neither have I, neither have you. But listen, just because we lack the dramatic personal experiences that Paul and Peter had doesn't mean that our experience of God's grace in our lives isn't useful to our evangelism. It is. Your experience matters. It's part of how God plans to use you to share the gospel with others. What we're offering when we offer Jesus is so much more than just a set of ideas. However wonderful and compelling the ideas of the gospel may be, we're offering people a person. We're recommending to them a savior and a friend that we have known, someone that we've got history with. Recently, we've been needing to have some housework done, and we've done a lot of research. We've browsed websites. We've looked at list after list of bullet points on services offered, and that matters. We need to make sure that, that whatever somebody offers matches up with our needs. But you know what we've really been looking for as we've tried to figure out how to solve these problems? What we've really been looking for is a, f- a referral from A friend. We want to talk to somebody who experienced what this company offered, who knew from experience that, yeah, I needed what you need and they delivered. Let me tell you how. And what you need to know this morning is that if you're a Christian, you have a story to tell that other people need to hear. Your experience of God's grace in your life is a tool God has given you to do the work of evangelism. The first step is so simple, guys. It's just to stop and think about it for a minute to stop and consider what you've seen looking back and to think ahead about how you might share it. Where have you experienced your need for a savior? How has the grace of God met you in your need? Look back and answer those questions and then look ahead and think carefully about how you can share that experience with other people. In some ways, all Christian testimonies are real similar. There's only one gospel, after all. There's only one hope in life and death. All of it's gonna come down to Jesus. Every Christian story is ultimately a story about him. So all our stories are gonna be focused on who he is and what he's done for us. They're gonna need to be focused on forgiveness and healing and hope and how Jesus forgives and restores and promises life. But, But guys, in another way, Every single Christian testimony out there is wonderfully unique. One of the things that makes Jesus so glorious and so compelling is that his grace can reach anyone from anywhere. How do you make that point? Unless you make it from showing how his grace reached you where you were when you had nowhere else to turn. The more unique our stories are from one another, the more clearly that point comes through. Don't be, in other words, don't be so preoccupied by whether your story has the kind of dramatic appeal that you've heard from other people's stories or even from Paul's story here. If you have known Jesus as the Savior you have needed, if you have known him to be the friend who was there when you needed him, if you have known you had nowhere else to turn and he gave exactly what you needed, you have a story to tell that other people need to hear. One of the most encouraging things about our Sunday evening services so far this fall has been the chance to hear testimonies of God's grace, much like Paul's, from several different friends so far over the course of this fall and, and, and from very, very different stories and backgrounds. We've heard of lives with a clear before and after, like Paul's life. And lives where understanding and growth have come over time, little by little. We've, see, we've, we've heard of, of stories that begin with Christian homes and stories that begin with broken homes. And the variety we've heard on all sorts of metrics, it just has made the power of Jesus more clear to us. We just come away thinking, my goodness, this Savior. Look how he reaches people, look what he's given to our friends. Perhaps the first step in you leveraging this tool. That God has already put in your life is simply to step back and think about it where have you experienced your need where has God's grace been sufficient for you and then to think next do I have a friend that can help me shape this story of God's grace so that it's ready to be heard and received by somebody else To do effective evangelism, we're going to need a personal experience of God's grace. If you're a Christian, you've got one. So now what you'll need, thirdly, is confidence that Jesus gave us this task. You'll need confidence that Jesus has given us the work of evangelism to do. This is a central theme in Paul's story. He knows he was commanded to evangelize by the Savior who redeemed him. Right at the climax of his testimony, we saw before, Jesus tells him, I'm appointing you as a servant and a witness to what you've seen and heard about me. That's verses 16 to 18. For Paul, that was all he needed to hear. It was simple cause and effect from that point on. Look at verse 19. Therefore, he says, Jesus told me he's sending me out. He says, I'm gonna be his servant. I'm gonna be his witness. Okay. Okay. Therefore, verse 19, I was not disobedient. Jesus is alive. He rules the world. He gets to tell me what to do. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, Paul says, then in Jerusalem and Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. And that's what Paul's doing even right now. He's telling these people who hold him at their mercy, In this show trial, he's telling them that they need to repent and to believe in Jesus. I stand here testifying, Paul says. We've spent the last several months together watching him do this work as far as his little legs would carry him in front of anybody who would listen to him. We've watched him keep it up despite the fact that so many people wanted to kill him. We've seen him go through dangers and toils and snares, not just when crowds are flocking to him, but when mobs are trying to tear him to pieces, limb from limb. And now we see where his confidence came from. Now we see how he's been able to keep going over and over and over through all that he's been through. He's confident and he keeps going because he knows exactly where this work came from. And if you're a Christian, friends, Jesus has given you this work to do too. It's that simple. In some ways, Paul's calling was unique. I mean, I know he was a firsthand witness of Jesus' resurrection. He was an apostle. God's Holy Spirit inspired him to write things that we read and learn from even today. He didn't inspire you that way. There, is, there, are, there are some important ways in which Paul is unique. But the, the way Paul talks about Jesus calling him to be a witness... The way he talks about his progress from Jerusalem to Judea and then to the Gentiles, the way Paul tells his story right here, do you hear the echo? He's basically just echoing the calling Jesus gave to all his disciples in the very first chapter of Acts. The theme sentence, the topic sentence for this whole book. Acts chapter one, verse eight. You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He said that to every Christian. And it echoes the way Matthew's gospel ends with the same exact commission from Jesus. Go therefore, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. These are bedrock Christian commissions. Every Christian has been called by Jesus to talk to other people about Jesus, just like Paul was. And we need this confidence that this is where our calling comes from. If we're to be faithful in evangelism like Paul was, it comes from the confidence that Jesus gave us this work. <laughs> Let me push this one one level further, friends. It's in the confidence that Jesus gave us this work to do, that he called us to do this, that we get the challenge and the comfort we need to be faithful. We need a challenge, first of all, in knowing Jesus called us to this. I, I, I recently read... Uh, another survey about patterns in American religious practice from a group called the Barna Group uh, came out around the same time as that LifeWay study I mentioned before. Uh, This study, though, it didn't ask about the practice of evangelism, but how Christians view evangelism. What they found among millennial Christians was especially interesting. In that demographic, in that age group, they found that nearly every respondent, 96% of them, said that part of their Christian faith meant being a witness. In other words, they got that this was a baseline command. This was part of being a Christian, is you tell people about Jesus. So 96% of them affirmed that. <laughs> Nearly every respondent, 94% of them, said they agreed with the statement that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. So they know Jesus commanded them to evangelize. And they know it would be really good for other people to hear and believe in Christ. And what's more, this is the the kicker. Roughly three-fourths of those who responded to the survey said that they know how to respond when somebody asks a question about their faith. They even described themselves as gifted at sharing their faith with other people. Three out of four millennial respondents. And all those answers make this next one almost shocking to me. In this same survey, nearly half of millennials 47 percent said that quote it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith it's wrong to practice evangelism so with this group the problem wasn't ignorance about what jesus has commanded everybody saw this as a baseline part of being christian the problem isn't disinterest. Everybody acknowledged it will be really good for somebody else to see Jesus and believe in him, to experience from his hand the same mercy and grace I've experienced. That would be great. The problem wasn't inadequacy. They, they, almost all of them say they know how to do this. They're great at it. But they believe it's wrong to do it. I, presumably pushy or prideful or presumptuous to try to offer to someone else the same faith you have as if it's more of a private thing? whatever, Whatever factors come in to explain that response. All I know is this. It helps to know evangelism isn't optional because our resurrected Savior and Lord commands it. And it can't be wrong because our resurrected Savior and Lord commands it. Really, all we need to know as Christ's followers is what our resurrected Savior and Lord wants from us. We owe everything to Him. We have no place to stand other than the solid rock He has put under our feet. We have no horizon to look to other than what His resurrection and the promise of our own has set in front of us. So we have no other thing to guide what we do now in the meantime, except what have you said? would be good for us to do and for others to receive. We need the challenge of this text and of Paul's example to remember that no matter how we might feel about it, even if on a gut level we fear that it might be received badly if we were to raise our faith in Jesus, we need to know that, that this, is, this is work Jesus gave us. We need to know it if we're to face up to the task. We need to be challenged in other words. But But we need more than that. We also need the comfort that comes when we're confident that it's Jesus who gave us this work to do. This confidence that Christ has called us to be his witnesses doesn't just challenge us, it comforts us. Because guys, Jesus is not a bad manager. Maybe you've had a bad manager or two. You know, bad managers are known for asking you to do things that you're not equipped to do and then leaving you to yourself to do them without giving you the support that you need from them to get the job done. That's what a bad manager does. Jesus is not a bad manager. Remember Acts 1-8? He won't ask you to do anything you're not ready for. Jesus promised you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's given you everything you need. Jesus is not a bad manager. And Jesus won't leave you alone to figure it out. You remember Matthew 28? Go make disciples of all nations. And I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Friends, Jesus has not just called you to this work. He has equipped you for it. And he will go and do it with you. What steps towards obedience can you take this morning? Do you have someone in mind that God has put near you who isn't a Christian? Name them, think about them, look for an opportunity to talk to them. Do you pray regularly for opportunities to share your faith with others? Do you have Christian friends around you who are faithful evangelists that you can look to for the help that you need? You can step towards obedience even now, even today. Now, friends, with these last few minutes, I want to offer you two more things that we need if we're to be effective in evangelism, quickly and together, because they work very closely hand in hand. They balance one another out. If we're going to be effective in evangelism, what we'll need next is a willingness to be rejected. That's number four. If there's anything we've learned from reading Acts, it's that not everyone wants what Jesus is offering. Paul is barely finished with his summary when Festus cuts him off here at near the end of chapter 26, verse 24. Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you crazy. This is madness. Suffering saviors, dead men alive and walking around, visions in the night. It's craziness. Paul's grown used to this reaction. And of course, he's only on trial to begin with because when he was talking about Jesus, the Jewish leaders got so mad about it. They were so angry. It was such a stumbling block to them that they wanted him dead. Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 1. This gospel, this message about Christ is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Paul keeps talking about it because he knows that to those who believe... It is the wisdom and power of God and there's hope nowhere else. Friends, if we are to follow Paul's example, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to address in our own selves what I find to be the, perhaps the biggest barrier to evangelism. We're afraid of being rejected. I don't know anybody who likes to be thought of as a fool. Wouldn't we so much rather be seen as thoughtful and well-reasoned even worse maybe than being seen as foolish I don't know anyone who likes to have people get mad at them the thought of being dangerous or antisocial because of what we believe about Jesus I would so much rather be seen as good for society wouldn't you as a value add I want to be on the team I don't want to be kicked off But we can't be effective in evangelism until we push back on our desire to please or to be well thought of or even to be included and accept that God has called us to do this and it's loving when we do. We'll need to be willing to be rejected if we're to be effective in evangelism. But not only that, here's the last one. It goes hand in hand. We'll need an expectation that God can reach anyone through his word. Yes, this word is foolishness. Yes, this word is a stumbling block. Yes, it could even get you killed. But Paul keeps on talking because he's learned from his own experience and from the promise of Jesus made to him that, that Jesus is building for himself a people. It'll be made up of all sorts of people from all over the world. And it'll happen because of his power, not Paul's. I love and leave you with the way this scene ends. Paul says simply, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. Then he turns to Agrippa. I'm persuaded none of these things has escaped Agrippa's notice. It's not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I know you believe. Paul's in full on evangelism mode right here. He's trying to seal the deal right here on the spot with this king. You need to know who he's talking to. This is Agrippa II. He's the fourth and final in a long line of evil herods who hate Christianity. His great, 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 whatever grandfather, Herod the Great. He's the one who tried to have all the kids under two murdered in Bethlehem just to make sure that this king, supposed king who was born there, didn't survive. It was Herod Antipas, next in line, who had John the Baptist beheaded because of his work preparing the way for Jesus. It was Agrippa the I, this guy's father, who had James, the brother of John, killed by the sword in Acts 12, so now can you hear in Agrippa II's voice, Paul, would, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Do you know who my daddy was, my granddaddy and my great granddaddy? You would have me be a Christian, Paul? Who do you think you are? And Paul's answer is basically, yeah, that sums it up. Whether it takes a long time or it takes a short time, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me would be such as I am, except these chains. Paul wants Jesus for everybody. And he's absolutely convinced that anybody could become a Christian, even a man like Agrippa. And if we want to be effective in evangelism, we we need to know why Paul had this confidence. Paul knew that the power to save belongs to God. Paul knew that anyone from anywhere could experience his grace and be set free. And Paul knew this. Because no one is further from Christ than the one who was spending his life trying to rid the world of Christians. When he was lost, God's grace found him. When he was blind, God's grace gave him eyes to see. And if God could save Paul, God can save anyone. Let's pray now that the Lord will give us this same confidence as we step forward in obedience to him father we do want what paul had a rock solid certainty that you are with us helping us equipping us and 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 a confidence that you have called us to do this work we pray lord that through this message through these chapters through what we've seen in paul we would be more active in evangelism that you would continue to build in our church a culture where it's normal to talk with one another about friends that we want to see come to know Jesus, to pray for one another by name over our work to help others see and believe in Jesus, and that you would, you would give us the wonderful joy of seeing many people in our city come to know and believe in Jesus. That's our prayer. We pray that you would answer it through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.